90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, working on my summer list of stuff to get done. I don't know if it's going to get done, but I'm working on it. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think last year we talked about our summer manifestos. We should probably do that again this year. Uh, We should, because it actually forces me to make it. And you know what we should do is follow up on last year's, too. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I don't know if we want to do that. (laughs) Yeah, that's just going to make us feel bad. (laughs) Yeah. Some stuff got accomplished, I will say. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's true. We're still here. That's one thing. (laughs) Yeah, believe it or not, after, you know, pushing 70 shows, uh, people are still listening. Thanks, Mom. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Mrs. Lehman. (laughs) So what are you up to? Um, Yeah, that's that's it. Field camp is going to be going here pretty quickly. And so it's um, field season, really. And as we know, a lot of our listeners are also getting geared up for summer field season. Yeah, you geologists and your field seasons. (laughs) Hey, this week we have a guest and we're going to prove that wrong. The field is not just for geologists. (laughs) It's true. So, (laughs) well, without any further ado, it's with pleasure I want to introduce our guest, Natalie Accardo. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be on this show. I'm a gigantic fan. Gigantic. (laughs) So, I feel like I'm super excited. Yeah, you've sent us some really great feedback, so it's great to actually get a chance to yes. to talk to you. And I know some of the work that you've been doing for your research, and it's really interesting. So I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Oh, awesome. I'm I'm happy that you're excited, too. <laughs> and um, as Shannon said, hopefully you're going to disprove this geology-geophysics field thing. Definitely. Right, exactly. Um, I know, you know, John doesn't get out much, you can tell from his uh, pasty white skin, but uh, some geophysicists actually go outside and touch rocks, and I am super excited to talk to Natalie about that process in terms of geophysics instead of geology. Yeah, and so, of course, we'll link in your website and everything for folks to, to look at, but before we even get going on that, I have to ask you, on your website at the top, you've got your name and a waveform. <laughs> Which earthquake is that? So that, you know, I do not know the exact earthquake, but that is an earthquake that was recorded on a station in Ethiopia and was a part of the work that I began doing when I first got to grad school. So it's one of the prettiest ones, as is required when you make images of waveforms. Uh, And yeah, it's just near and dear to my heart. It's one of the first ones that I downloaded for my work. So I love it. It's super cool. Oh, I must say, I'm really excited about um, that. I want to find an earthquake that fits my name now, too. <laughs> it's also on the logo for the student seismology workshop, so I'm, I make a lot of logos, and I, I don't differentiate my earthquakes for it either. <laughs> oh, that's I have awesome. a flash drive sitting in front of me with that waveform on it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the same. Yeah. It, it's pretty nice. It's pretty nice. Yeah. So you said Ethiopia. Is that where some of your cool geophysics fieldwork takes place? So actually, no, that was part of, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, no, that was, it's this amazing thing in seismology where when you, after you collect seismic data in the field, it's open to the academic public uh, two years after you've collected it, and so that data was collected in 2001 to 2003, and then in 2012, I just went online and, and downloaded it right away. So that is not one of the many seismograms that I helped to collect. But um, yeah. it's actually not too far. Uh, my main research is focused on the Malawi Rift, which is this uh, very narrow rift zone between Malawi and Tanzania in East Africa. So if you can kind of orient yourself, um, you can imagine the Horn of Africa just travel about 3,000 kilometers south, and you'll hit this very narrow, long lake called Lake Malawi, and, and that's where the bulk of my fieldwork has been conducted. You said a thousand kilometers. Like, that's insane because you're not even close to, like, the end of Africa. You know what I mean? Like, it just, I started thinking about how it blows my mind that you don't understand distances on a continent as big as Africa. Yeah, yeah, it's totally true. So my study region is right around seven degrees south. Um, So you can think about, you know, 700 
kilometers south of the equator, approximately. So yeah, so it's a pretty far distance um, from the Horn of Africa, which is which is where Ethiopia is. Um, yeah, and so this fieldwork is uh, part of this big segment project. And so I know you guys love acronyms, and this is the perfect <laughs> example <laughs> of an acronym. Um, and so segment stands for, wait for it, it stands for Study of Extension and Magmatism in Malawi and Tanzania. And so don't try to estimate which letters go with which words because it's not perfect. <laughs> um, but, but my advisors are very proud of the acronym uh, and, and I love it. Um, Excellent. Yeah, and so... Yeah, I, I got confused when you were giving that one, but um, yeah, I'm just gonna it's, go It's like it. G for... So yeah. the, uh. the G comes from magmatism. <laughs> the tough part. Oh, okay. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> and the the N comes from the and part too. So <laughs> there's a little bit of oh, very creative wordplay in there. <laughs> I love it. That's wonderful. Well, so I, I'm pretty curious. So, so you said lake. Yes. And d- does that mean you're talking about marine geophysics? So yeah. So I am talking about both actually. And so we had this big project out there to study um, the shallow Earth structure there. And to do that, we had both seismic instruments that we deployed on land, just like regular old seismic uh, deployments. And then we also had a big deployment where we put instruments in the lake. Uh, And we call these affectionately lake bottom seismometers. More commonly, like 99% of the time, these instruments are put in oceans and are more commonly called ocean bottom seismometers. So we absolutely adore our our few lake bottom seismometers. <laughs> um, yeah, and so this was a super unique experiment because of the combination of these onshore, the stations that were literally on land, and also these few offshore instruments that we that we put in the lake. And and I'll just say that we're doing this in Malawi and Tanzania because this is where there is a continental rift system. Where, which is where the continent is rupturing apart or is tearing apart, is in the just the beginning stages of it. We're calling it a, we don't like to call it a young rift because the dates are a little, are still being debated, uh, but we call it an immature rift, as if it's being naughty, a very immature uh, rift system <laughs> uh, there. And so, yeah, so we're trying to understand what does the earth structure look like beneath this rift system and how is the continent tearing apart here and so to do that we put out 55 on land seismometers Uh, so we dug 55 holes and put 55 instruments in the ground and then we put out seven uh, broadband lake bottom seismometers so these are really big instruments that are very sensitive Uh, they can record earthquakes all over the world any earthquake greater than about a magnitude four these instruments uh, will hear and will will record ground motions from them. So they're really, really wonderful, very highly sensitive instruments. And then on a slightly side note, we also had 27 short period instruments. And these are instruments that are meant more for local, really close by um, sources. And so we put an additional 27 instruments also in the lake. So lots of onshore stations, lots of offshore stations. Uh, It it was great. It's really cool. So how deep because ocean bottom seismometry is normally really tricky and you don't get the instruments back a lot of the time because things go wrong in very deep depths Uh, so how deep are we talking with this lake was was this comparable to doing ocean bottom seismometry or a lot easier a lot harder so it was a combination lake malawi is the second deepest lake in uh africa and it maxes out around 700 meters in depth though actually there's never been a high resolution bathymetry survey so so that's a little bit approximate Um, And so at 700 meters, that is pretty shallow for ocean bottom instruments. Um, And the lake is deepest at 700 meters, but actually there's quite a wide variation in lake depth across it. And so we had instruments at the shallowest one was at 200 meters and the deepest instrument we put at 600 meters. And so there was a lot of variation, but it's true that that is actually quite shallow compared to most ocean bottom seismometer deployments, which are more in the thousands of meters, or I was involved in a experiment where we were putting instruments out at 5,000 meters water depth, which is 
which is actually kind of insane. You think about these poor little instruments that are sitting beneath <laughs> five kilometers of water, and you're like, oh, poor baby. Like, like wow. do okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, imagine something that costs twenty or $30,000 and is horrifically damaged if you drop it and then drop it through 5,000 meters of water (laughs) and expect it to survive. Yeah, and not only expect it to survive, but expect it to sit there on the ocean floor for a year, you know, 18 months, and then come back to you. I think that's the most amazing part to me. It's like anyone can chuck something over the side, but to get it to (laughs) to then wake up and come back to you a year or more later is just, it's a feat of engineering that I'm still so amazed by. I'm glad we don't put um, cameras on these. I don't think I can handle what those little guys are seeing down there. I know, right? I'm so curious. I don't, they must have, I know they've done, uh, when sometimes when they've had instrument troubles or the instruments won't come back, they've done surveys of them. And so they've sent cameras down to go look at them and, and see why they're not coming up or what's happening on site. And definitely there's a lot of stuff growing on them usually. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. So Lake Malawi is really near Lake Tanganyika, which we have a professor in our department does a lot of work there. Um, And I know there's some weird stuff that happens in just terms of stratification of the water and everything in Lake Tanganyika. Is Lake Malawi like that? And how does that affect how you take, you know, your readings? Yeah. And so definitely it is chemically stratified. Um, I don't know too much detail uh, about the chemical stratification, but I do know that they were worried about the instruments. Like, what's the environment down at the lake floor? Is this going to cause corrosion? Um, But actually, in fact, they came back, and I think they were generally all fine. There was no lasting effects, so that was great. And uh, and we got all but one back, so that was the other amazing part. Um, These instruments, actually, they use these release signals. And so I guess to explain how these instruments work, you take an instrument, and as we were saying, you chuck it over the side, and you let it drift peacefully down to the ocean floor, and then you um, you let it sit there and record beautiful data from far distant earthquakes, and then when you're ready to bring it back up, you send it an acoustic release signal. And if you've ever been on a ship, you'll know what this sounds like because you can hear the acoustic release or any acoustic messages that they're sending to these instruments through the ship because they're steel ships, so you can hear them all over. And they kind of sound like beep, beep, boop, boop, beep, beep, boop. That's literally what they sound like. And you <laughs> <laughs> and you, uh, you send these, these little beep, beep, boop, beep, 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 boop. And that tells the instrument to send a current through a copper wire. And because you're in salt water, that wire then burns and actually breaks. And that's what allows the instrument to lift off from this really heavy anchor that's attached to its bottom. And so since we were in a freshwater environment, this was not going to work. We couldn't, we couldn't throw these <laughs> instruments down and expect, uh, and expect these release systems to work. And so the wonderful people at the, um, at the University of California, San Diego, at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, uh, built new release systems for us. And those were not dependent on salt water. And we had all of them, but one come back. And the one that didn't come back we don't think came back for issues with the release system. Uh, So it was wonderful. I think they were very nervous when they waited for that first one to come back because it was kind of like, (laughs) if one comes back, they're all going to come back. Uh, So I think they were... I didn't even, I didn't even know how you did this. So these things just like pop up out of the water and you just go catch them? Yeah, yeah, you literally, (laughs) you, uh, it's amazing. I have some photos of it, but uh, one of the first things I did in the field was I went out on one of these OBS recovery cruises and it wasn't too hard of work. We were just, we were about 700 kilometers south of Hawaii so the weather was nice it was winter time so it was a it was a pretty sweet deal um but these instruments were in 5,000 meters of water and so you sent them these release signals and then they need to float up through the water column and even though they're moving at like 30 meters a second that still takes a really long time and so uh, so you need to wait on station for about two and a half hours we had to, to wait for these instruments to come through the water column and then and you're monitoring where they are you send them the little beeps and then they beep back at you so you can try and triangulate where they are uh and then you you have the captain of the ship who's very good at driving these ships and they come up right alongside the ship kind of 
you know, as if you're sticking your head out the window of a car <laughs> and you have a very long pole with a clip and a rope on it. And there's about three people that have these, uh, what we look like fishing hooks. Um, and they're attached to a wench or attached to a crane. And so you, you attach your hook to the OBS, which is not super easy, especially if you're in a lot of rough water, you're trying to kind of catch this OBS as it's bobbing down the side of the ship and uh, hopefully you catch it on the first try and then and then you pull it back on board uh but so yeah it's it's kind of like fishing for OBSs so it's I guess that's sort of the same procedure like for hooking crab pots and that kind of thing that you see <laughs> exactly on Deadliest Catch thinking. right <laughs> yeah exactly what I was thinking of. I'm not super familiar with that uh with that technique <laughs> But yeah. How, and now, how big are these instruments you're trying to catch? They're they're quite large. I mean, they're probably have to be about four feet tall. You know, a couple feet oh, wow. wide. So they're they're square, big, big instruments. And there's a couple different places where you can try to catch your your hook on it. They definitely when we went out and got the first few, I was definitely not allowed to help. But by the end, I think they <laughs> people who had enough faith that uh, they let me get out there and kind of hang over the side and do it. And uh, it was really great. And uh, I'll also say it's if you don't know like a beautiful sight, or I'm sure we all do, but <laughs> one beautiful sight is seeing these uh, instruments just pop to the surface. Because you can imagine you've been waiting for two and a half hours for this thing to come up. And you go outside when you know it's close and you get binoculars and everyone's scanning the horizon. And, uh, and the instruments actually have little flags attached to them, like bright orange flags to help you see them. And, they, and so you're just standing out there trying to find this instrument with its cute little flag bopping up and down. And, and so it's it's real fun, especially if you see it first. You're like, ah, over there, port side, starboard. <laughs> oh, wow. I had no idea. That's super cool. I mean, I've seen how these things are laid out, but I never even thought about how you got them back. That's awesome. Yeah. Are you wishing you were a geophysicist now, Shannon? Just a little bit. I mean, like 0.1% of me. <laughs> because... I mean, it, it, being in a ship is one thing, but hauling geophysical equipment over land is not fun. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, you think my chainsaw in the water is bad that we have to haul, but my goodness. Yeah, until you've carried heavy. car batteries and <laughs> yes. cases of equipment <laughs> up the sides of hills, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That stuff is seriously, there are so many batteries in geophysics, <laughs> and they're so heavy. <laughs> well, so I actually have a question. So for the... the the instruments that you had, your lake bottom seismometers, I'll stop calling them OBSs oh, since they're not. Uh, <laughs> do you see actually like T waves or, or T phases in this data? You know, that is a great question. I We have not seen it right off the bat, but I can't say that for sh like unequivocally at all. I would wonder if you had enough water to actually... So maybe we should explain T phases are these phases right. that um, are... that travel through water. So they're seismic phases that travel at the speed of sound through water. So they're very slow and you commonly see them when you have instruments along a coastline and an earthquake um, in an ocean basin. So you have a travel path that has a lot of ocean. So you have a lot of seismic energy traveling through the ocean. Um, but I would have to think Lake Malawi, it's a really cool lake. It's super long. It's about 600 kilometers long, almost perfectly oriented north-south. Uh, but it's only about 50 kilometers wide, so it's quite narrow. And so the obs for the observation of T waves, I would have to wonder that unless you had a perfectly oriented earthquake directly north or south of right. the lake, uh, if you would have enough distance for these waves to actually separate out due to the different velocities that they travel at. But that's a that's a great idea. I should I should look for that. Yeah, because I mean, they get trapped in this this minimum sound like so far channel right in the ocean. So it'd be interesting to see, especially if this lake is really stratified. Yeah. Uh, if they can get trapped somewhere, I I, I don't I just I like the T phase, so <laughs> I was <laughs> curious if you saw it. I know we do this thing called uh, record reading every week at uh, Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory where I work, and that's where a graduate student has to stand up and talk about an earthquake that happened during the week, and you have to present the actual data from it and stand up there and in front of a bunch of professors and scientists identify, ah, here's the P wave and the S wave, and, and we always, if there is an earthquake with a large oceanic path, we commonly, we're like, where's the T phase? Where is it? 
<laughs> you get bonus points if you have it. So. <laughs> yeah, and actually, we, we should probably mention, we'll link in the show notes, too. You all have a really neat tool to do that that's open source. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's called RecRead Plot. We have really original script names. Um, and, no, it's wonderful. If you have, it's super easy to use. It runs on MATLAB, and it uh, gets all of this publicly available data from these wonderful worldwide and also USA-bound uh, seismographic networks. So it's really cool. Okay, so I want to go back, Natalie, and talk more about <laughs> more about schlepping geophysical equipment over land <laughs> because I really do. Like I, I, I live in this weird nexus of you know paleomags kind of geophysics. Well, it is geophysics and geology, and so. A lot of geologists are like, oh, yeah, geophysicists don't know anything about field work. <laughs> and it's like, it is terrible work. Like, <laughs> like uh, I'm assuming you have some really good stories about how difficult it is to schlep this equipment. I mean, it's one thing being on a boat, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. You know, I had only done... Uh, ocean research or research on oceanic vessels uh, for the first bit of my, I guess for the first year and a half of my uh, graduate school. And then finally it was time to start work on this segment project, which was a land-based thing. And I think to my very uneducated mind, I was like, oh, this is going to be easier. Like we're not out in the middle of the ocean. Everything's going to be fine. And no, it's way harder. It's, it's, it's orders of magnitude harder. Uh, out in the the real the real world as we'll call it um yeah and even I mean I guess there are definitely logistical hassles to work out in the oceans um but talk about just getting equipment to where you need it to be so this segment project um covered two countries, Malawi and Tanzania. And so we had to separately ship all of the gear. Half of the gear went to Malawi, half of the gear went to Tanzania. And even though it's such a short distance, just a, a border crossing away, uh, generally we had two teams that didn't necessarily interact with each other just because of the fact that the study region is composed of two different countries. Um, <clears throat> And then in terms of actually schlepping the equipment, I think John mentioned that uh, batteries are heavy. These are very heavy. Uh, and so at each site, we needed about two car batteries. Um, and that was just the beginning of the packing list. When you are installing a seismometer that's going to sit somewhere for a year, two years, three years, you need a lot of gear. And so actually the most gear was it was the things that were needed on site. And so when you get to a site, you wanna make sure that your seismometer is both gonna be in a, a very quiet place. You don't want people running around it or making a lot of uh, what we call cultural noise. Um, you don't want a lot of really tall trees next to it because actually the swaying of the trees will actually shake the ground and give you noise that you don't want. Uh, and so the first thing you look for is, yeah, a low noise environment. But then the other really important thing is safety. You want to make sure, since we are going to leave this instrument there for, you know, maybe three or six months, uh, that no one's going to come and take it. And so <clears throat> part of the way to do that is that you actually bury these instruments. And so where we were, we dug about meter, meter and a half deep holes. And so these holes were a meter and a half deep, and they were about a meter long and about another meter, three quarters of a meter wide. So big holes, almost the size of human graves. When we get, when we walked away from them, we <laughs> often said that they looked like um, grave sites. So it's a little morbid. Um, but so you, you dig these really big holes and then to make sure that the instruments don't flood because you're worried about water getting into these holes, you actually put large barrels in, in these holes and then you place the instruments inside the barrels. And you actually have two barrels because you have one for the seismometer. You want to keep that really waterproof and perfect. And also you want it very well coupled to the ground. So you want this instrument to actually sit on a little pad of concrete so that if the ground moves, it moves and, and you have a coherent connection between the two. And then you have a separate barrel that's full of your car batteries, it's full of your data recorder, so the actual computer that takes the data from the seismometer and stores it. Uh, you have 
things for power that modulates the power from the solar panel um, and just so many wires. I can't tell you how many <laughs> wires are in these barrels. And so, uh, and that doesn't even include that at every site you have a solar panel, like I said, and you have a GPS uh, clock. They look like little hockey pucks that you attach to um, to a roof or to you know something that has a little bit of elevation, so that you can get really good timing because seismology is all timing. You need you need really perfect timing. And so if you can imagine, oftentimes we would pack the cars up maybe to try and deploy, uh, you know, three or four stations. And so that's six barrels, you know, uh, four solar panels, you know, these really big R boxes. These are these really big gray plastic boxes that the instruments come in. And before you know it, these gigantic cars or pickup trucks that we take are just packed to the brim you're just you know you're you're shoved in there with just anything and everything and uh yeah so I have most of my memories I feel like are from very tightly packed cars and and the best would be we would be in these super full cars and then our colleagues or someone would see uh someone selling uh watermelons on the side of the road (laughs) and we would he would be like oh these look great and he would buy four watermelons and so if you can imagine you're already in this overstuffed car and then he's brought back four watermelons and so i just had this amazing uh, memory of me and my advisor sitting in this full car each carrying a, a watermelon in our lap because there's nowhere else to put it um so <laughs> So See, this is what this is what geophysicists that sit behind computers miss out on, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Watermelon-filled car rides. That's what I remember. Right, exactly. Like, putting a watermelon in your lap in front of your computer is not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, when we did uh, the geophysics field camp for students at OU, it was, what, uh, a full 15-passenger van, at least, of just equipment that we drove out there? Uh-huh. And that was not, you know, that was a very small seismic system that's a ground penetrating radar a couple of magnetometers and a gravimeter and that filled up a huge van mm. and oh, that's yeah. nothing near the quality of what you're doing oh, uh, mm-hmm. or near the you know had to be weatherproof because if it was right. bad weather we we weren't out there working yeah yeah and then we took a betsy gun this last year and Ooh. so that filled up the entire back of a yukon in addition to <laughs> all the other stuff we had to schlep out there um so yeah i've I, I get to do all the packing and none of the fun of the geophysics field camp, I will say. Um, I kind of took it over for a morning last year because I said, I packed this Betsy gun. It was ridiculously hard to pack. I'm going to shoot this thing. <laughs> so <laughs> I took over their um, seismic source for a while just for... I mean, for research purposes, obviously. <laughs> Why else? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There was no other reason. Well, so that actually brings up a really good point. So a Betsy gun's a way to generate uh, a known impulse source. And is, is all this work that you've told us about, is that just using earthquakes as sources? Or was there some active source component to this, too? That's a great question. So, yeah, there was definitely an active source uh, part to this. And actually, that's one of the most uh, amazing parts of the segment project, if I if I can say so myself. Other people might think their parts are amazing, <laughs> which all the parts are amazing. It was an extremely diverse <laughs> experiment. Uh, but one of the most unique parts was the active source part. And so that's when, instead of using earthquakes to generate the seismic waves that we use to image the Earth, we make our own waves. And so when you do this in oceanic environments or lake environments like we were in uh, you use these things called air guns and these are large mechanical devices that generate a very large air bubble a very high pressure large volume air bubble that collapses and makes um, a very you know you try to make it as impulsive as possible but a sound source that we can use and so the energy from that bubble uh, generates waves that travel through the subsurface and we can use them just like we use the seismic waves that travel from earthquakes. And this was, like I said, one of the most amazing parts of this project because 
generally when we do active source experiments in the oceans, we use a seismic vessel or a research ship that's already meant to do this, that's built very specially to do this because the air guns require really high pressure uh, air, you know, which you have to be really, really careful with. You have to tow the air guns behind the ship. Um, so they're, you know, these are things you have to have a very um, uh, the proper ship to tow things behind it. And also to record the waves generated from the air guns, you generally pull behind you a streamer. And so this is a long cable that has hydrophones in it that record the, um, the arrivals from the waves generated by the air guns. And these streamers are kilometers long. Um, I know the, the ship that Columbia helps to operate called the Marcus Langseth, uh, has a streamer, I think it's eight kilometers long and it can be longer, I believe. So these are, that's a lot of weight, if you can imagine, to tow behind a ship. And so you need a special ship to do this. And so we wanted to do this in Lake Malawi, but we were told we could not uh, carry the Langseth over land. I think they asked <laughs> and they were told no. Uh, and so instead we had to retrofit. Um, and what we did was we took a cargo ship there was a cargo ship on Lake Malawi that hadn't been used uh, recently. And we took a bunch of shipping containers. Uh, we used one shipping container to sleep in. It was retrofitted, I should say. <laughs> but we slept in a shipping container that we placed on the deck. And we had a shipping container that was kind of a workshop. It had a bench and we had a bunch of... Um, uh, that's where we fixed everything and we had a bunch of gear in there. We had another shipping container that was just uh, just contained all of the stuff, just general stuff like suitcases and what and other extra equipment. Uh, we had two containers that were actually the air compressors. So these were the machines that actually compressed the air to the high pressure that we needed. We also had to bolt a extra fuel container onto the ship. Uh, so that we'd have enough fuel to stay out for long periods of time. And then, of course, we had to somehow retrofit it to tow um, a one and a half kilometer long streamer behind it and also tow these air guns. And so uh, it took about several weeks to maybe more than a month of time actually in Malawi uh, retrofitting this cargo ship um, to carry this equipment and be able to operate like a seismic vessel. And it was a sight to see. We have a lot of before and after pictures and maybe I'll try to put one on my website. Uh, but it's it's amazing the transformation that all of the hard work that different engineers and that the scientists put in to, to make this possible. Because yeah, doing seismic acquisition with for an active source experiment without a seismic research vessel is tough. And doing it in a place like Lake Malawi uh, can be even tougher. And so the fact that they were able to pull this off was amazing. It wasn't without its hardships. Uh, we had our streamers struck by lightning twice, we think. We know at least one time it was probably hit by lightning twice, <laughs> which the odds of that happening are, are low, I have to imagine. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, there was other. We had a, uh, uh, a generator fail and then the backup generator failed. And so there were definitely some, some hardships in there, but the quality of the data that we got back was amazing. And I think all of the stress and hard work that went into both just getting the planning down for it and then actually in the field getting the data, it was definitely all worth it. Um, but it was, yeah, that was probably the most unique thing I've ever done and may ever do, I would say. <laughs> well, so do you listen to 99U, the podcast? Oh, I don't. I love uh, podcasts, but I'll add it to the list. Yeah. So I'll actually try to link this specific episode in. And it's funny because I listened to this episode, then it was mentioned on the Orbital Mechanics not too long ago, and then now uh, it's coming up here. But it was an entire episode that was maybe half an hour long on shipping containers. <laughs> it sounds really boring, but it turns out to be fascinating. I bet. Uh, and they did something like you were talking about. They were studying... Um, refrigerated shipping and so they made like a special container to sleep in and all that yeah. so i imagine that was really quite an experience and it sounds like a lot of macgyvering that probably ended up happening oh my goodness the macgyvering that had to happen on this <laughs> research cruise was just incredible i mean but it also it tells you about the you know the abilities and the capabilities that we still have you know to really fix mechanical issues i feel like being a seismologist, I spend the bulk of my time when I'm not in the field in front of a computer, and then I just 
Google any error, you know, error 1611, I Google it, error 1514, you know, I Google all of my issues, um, you know, but here we, they, we didn't really have that option, you know, internet access was limited, we didn't always have telephone coverage, and so the ability, the things that they were able to fix uh, was pretty incredible. Which is also something we talk a lot about on this show is your ability <laughs> to adapt and yeah. um, have those kind of outside knowledge because you never know when you're going to need to do something weird or as simple as stripping a wire, right? Yeah, right. I had never had to strip a wire until until I went to the field for the first time. And I loved it because I think when you go into the field, you know, they'll ask you to do something. And if you and you have to say you don't know. You can't fake this. I've, I learned right. this for the first time. You can't fake if you don't know it. And you just have to be like, I don't know how to do that. And 99.999% of the time, someone will be like, oh, let me show you. Let me show you how to do this. You don't know how to use a hammer? That's fine. They might laugh at you, but, but that's fine. <laughs> They'll show you how to use it. I know. I had to use, uh, the first time I dug a hole, um, just I got laughter. I was just laughed out of the room. We were outside. But I, they just laughed so hard. But you know what? By the end of it, I could dig a really good hole. <laughs> well, I'm very you know, proud. A, a human grave-sized hole? <laughs> <laughs> we generally had help digging those holes. But, but I did my fair share of digging sometimes. And uh, yeah, I'm watch me dig a hole. Anyone. <laughs> Give me the opportunity. I'll do it. <laughs> so. It's so cool um, to hear those kind of things because I think people think that this stuff is so far above them and they can't even relate but you know the, the successful geophysicists have to have these you know everyday skills and i think a lot of people overlook that skill set as well you know totally well and and anytime you download data uh, this always gets me and i've talked about this before but anytime somebody downloads data you have to remember that there was somebody that dug the hole for that data like exactly. it's not just this thing that comes out of out of the air there was a lot of effort that went into it at some point so in paleo mag you know we have a lot of students that sit in the lab and run samples and they're undergraduate students so they're not necessarily involved in research yet and we try to tell them you have to be careful with every single sample they're impossibly hard to get you know, and I remember I took a class out and we sampled and they came back and a couple of them were workers and they said, wow, like we had no idea what you were talking about, but now we'll be extra careful. And I, my first thought was, what have you been doing before? But, um, just just being a part of that data collection. And this wasn't even a difficult place, you know, gave them that sort of reverence for you know, the actual samples and the act of the data collection and how important it is. So that's really neat. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, yeah, after these first ex field experiences, the amount of effort and the amount of just, I think, personal stress that went into it by everyone involved, and you know, just nerves about, is this going to work out? Are the instruments going to come back? Will it still be recording when I get there? It just makes you so appreciative for when they do work and they are still yes. on when you get back. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's just, it's amazing. I think there's this amazing quote that I saw actually at the Wright Brothers uh, National Monument that goes something like, it says, it, it's talking about their... Uh, their accomplishment and it says something and I'm paraphrasing but like uh unconquerable courage and dauntless faith or dauntless faith and unconquerable courage and I think I use that in my acknowledgement section every time and I say <laughs> thanks for like the unconquerable faith and dauntless courage of all of those involved in this experiment oh, it's so true. there's nothing quite as terrifying as either popping the memory card out oh. or hooking the cable up for the first time to an instrument and saying, is there going to be one file <laughs> or the 500 that are supposed to be there? Oh, totally, totally. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. And especially, at least with the seismic instruments we have, they have a teeny little screen on the data logger. And so if that's on, you know, you at least know that something's happening. And so, yeah, it's definitely, <laughs> you You lift up these lids because you've covered, you've covered the barrel with a little lid. And so it's this initial peak. And I feel like I always close my eyes as I lift the barrel up. <laughs> <laughs> Say a little like, prayer to the gods of data that it's there. Yeah, it's so funny too, right? Because at that point, you can't help it. <laughs> like, nothing you're yeah. going to do is going to exactly. help anything. But yeah. Um, 
I think that's a really good lead into a question that John had written down uh, here for you is what is more fun, analyzing data or placing seismometers? I have to say, so it's been about six months since my last fieldwork opportunity. And I'll say that in the first three years of grad school, I was out in the field for about seven or eight months total. So it was a pretty, it was a pretty big part of my graduate career in the beginning. Um, and now that I've kind of been away for it, I miss it. I miss the, the kind of the adventure and the uh, and a little bit of the unknown. I guess there's a lot of unknown in, in graduate school too, so that should not be yeah. um, should misstate that too. But I think there's there's great parts to both sides. Like I said, I definitely I love getting out in the field, getting dirty. I love interacting with new people and trying to share the science that you're doing and more of the motivation while you're doing this with them and getting them as excited about what you're doing as you are. Uh, but at the same time, I know there's nothing like getting this data back and, and seeing what it shows you. And especially, you know, some of the data, it, you know, it's taken a couple years for us to, to have it. Um, and so the, the joy of getting that new, fresh off the presses data back and looking and seeing something maybe that you didn't expect is is wonderful. And so I'm just going to be lame and say I, I like them both. <laughs> it's, a, it's okay to equivocate. <laughs> well, so you mentioned doing some outreach and talking to people about what you were doing and why you were doing it. And so how did you do that during this experiment? Yeah, so it, it really varied. Um, definitely for the segment experiment, we had slightly different motivations. So one thing, you know, you're going somewhere and you're digging a hole. Um, commonly, we would place these instruments at schools or churches or health clinics, just primarily for the safety part. You know, generally, you'd know that there'd be people around and someone would be watching the solar panel and, you know, could kind of let you know if something went wrong. Um, and so because you were doing that, because you were, you know, encroaching on these people, we definitely made an effort to visit with, um, you know, the very local most politicians that are in the different townships and villages and kind of just say, hey, we're here. This is what we're doing. You're going to see us here a lot. And um, we worked really closely with our colleagues that were always with us from either the Malawi Geological Survey or the Tanzanian Geological Survey, and they would help us to translate um, to different people the motivations for this study. And especially for them, uh, the Lake Malawi and the Malawi Rift Zone where we're working is an active part of an active continental rift and so there, it is seismically active there and there have been large events you know magnitude uh, higher than magnitude fives you know that have been damaging and so when we go to some of these places we definitely are saying we're trying to understand what's happening here and we're and we're trying to understand the reasons why there are earthquakes and and how the earthquakes are happening and then we also talked to them about the broader motivations. Everyone that we met almost knew about this concept of the East African Rift Valley or the Great Rift Valley, which is the broader rift zone that the Malawi Rift sits in. And so the East African Rift System runs 3,000 kilometers from, <clears throat> from Ethiopia in the north uh, all the way south to the southern tip of Lake Malawi. And so this is this gigantic rift zone. It's one of the largest presently active rift zones in the world today. Uh, and it it's just amazing. And so to do outreach, uh, we talked to the local politicians and also the people where we were actually installing the sites, telling them about some of the hazard sides of what we're trying to doing, as well as the broader motivations. And then actually hands-on things is we brought with us um, one of the PIs that is involved with this project had the wonderful idea to bring with us educational posters. And so we brought a bunch of educational posters about earthquakes and how we study earthquakes and the science behind earthquakes. And we would hand them out willy-nilly, anyone who wanted one, we'd give them to them. And, uh, and it was great because we'd come back uh, you know, months later to check on the instruments and they'd be hanging in the school rooms or in the political office. And so that was great. That was definitely how we did the bulk of our uh, broader impacts and, and getting to know the locals was telling them about our research and handing out educational posters. Yeah, it is a really great idea. And it's a way to make a lasting impact that 
it's always going to be there on that school wall for quite some time. And a lot of people are going to see it and slowly internalize it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And and also, I should say that uh, I was talking about how our colleagues, you know, helped us translate a lot of our scientific motivation uh, to different people we met. But there was also a lot of English going around. And so I think these scientific posters will both be used for science purposes and then also, um, you know, for, for English as well. Yeah. Well, and I guess that's the advantage to something like that hanging on the wall. Like I said, you can, you see it every day. And I know people probably remember some poster that was in a workplace that they worked in 10 years ago because they saw it every day on the way to, <laughs> you know, the bathroom or the water cooler or whatever. So it's, it's an easy way to make a, a long impact. Yeah. So I have a question that um, we, we like to go on this kind of topic here of what... What do you like to use every day? What tool, technology or otherwise, must you have to work? My go-to is Evernote. And so if you don't know what Evernote is, one, you should know. It's an amazing uh, note-taking service, but it's it's so much more than that. Um, but generally, I guess the easiest way to explain it is it's a note-taking service. And so I use this to journal about my my research. And by journaling, I mean literally journaling. I talk uh, in the third person to myself via these journals. Um, and I'll say, Natalie did this today. Natalie tried this today. Or sometimes I'm more familiar with myself and I'll bring up an imaginary person and say, we tried this and this didn't work. We tried this and, and that didn't work. Um, and for me, that is just so necessary for my research to remind myself what I'd been doing, what I had tried, what worked, what didn't work. Uh, I also just use it for life. Um, anytime I find a cool recipe, I'll clip it to Evernote. Or if I have an idea or a packing list, everything goes in Evernote. And uh, it's just, it's so powerful and so useful. And you can get it on any device, laptop, uh, cell phone, just on the internet. Um, I use that all the time. I will warn you, though, if you journal like I do for your research and you write things like, ugh, blurg, this wasn't working, and then you accidentally show that note to your advisor trying to show them a figure above it, uh, they might think you're kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's a really good idea, though, because I don't know, there have been several times that I thought I should really do this, and I go back and I start doing it, and this feels familiar <laughs> and find out that a year ago I had the same idea and tried it and it, it flopped. <laughs> and, you know, I wasted that three hours yeah. coming to the same realization. Yeah. Yeah. Though sometimes, uh, I will have thought I was so smart and been like, Oh, I wrote about what I did to fix this. And I was just talking about this with a friend the other day. And then I would go back to the note and it'd be like, I tried something and it didn't work. And then I tried something else and it didn't work. And I wrote a code and then I won't write the name down of the code. And so then you're kind of like, well, that's great, former self. Like, thanks for all the help. <laughs> so definitely if you do it, you have to be specific. <laughs> you have to be specific. It's, it's like when you see people's get commit and it, the commit message on something says bug fix. Yeah. And you just want to strangle them. You're like, what bug? What bug? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I imagine that that makes you have a lot of Evernote notebooks, right? I'm, so that's what many. I'm struggling with is like, I want to love Evernote too. Like, I want <laughs> that to be my go-to thing. But now I'm struggling with all these notebooks and how to categorize them. So yeah. how do I do that? Definitely, I, I've started collapsing a lot of notes into one another. And so I have several, I guess I, don't, I guess they're called bundles, I want to say, for when you stack yeah. uh, uh files of, or folders of notes on top of each other. And so I have several for research, you know, for different parts of my scientific work that I'm doing. And then I have a more general name, one that's aptly named Life. And under Life, I have several <laughs> notebooks about fun things, stupid ideas, uh, you know, helpful. I have um, something that's just like helpful all capital letters and so anytime like there's like an important like uh number i need to remember or something like that 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 goes under helpful um and i'll, I'll also say along with evernote uh something i use or and would absolutely despair without is dropbox and so i think i'm one of these people 
who I went Dropbox Pro. I'm a pro there, and I have a big mm-hmm. amount of storage on it. And I have my entire research directory on Dropbox. So everything sits in my Dropbox account, um, which is which is amazing because it lets me operate a couple different computers at the same time and ensure that not only that scripts are constant or per- computer programs are constant across computers, but actually data files are shared across computers. And it also means that... Um, I can have uh, one computer backing up Dropbox separately uh, without having to worry about plugging my laptop in to Time Machine all the time. Um, and so I definitely, I'm a gigantic Dropbox user. I, I absolutely love it. Yeah, yeah, I really like Dropbox. And I I tried desperately to love Evernote, and <laughs> I, I couldn't get it to work for oh, me. No. And I, I'm trying OneNote now, and I'm pretty <laughs> okay. happy with OneNote. Whoa, uh, wait a minute, what? <laughs> That, that's Wait. another story. But. <laughs> is that the minimalist we're, Evernote? <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna revisit this. This is a Microsoft product, John. Oh. That you said you loved, right? Yeah, like, I know. I uh, didn't it even is a pretty good piece that. of software. And we're there's coming actually back to this. <laughs> well, there's actually a a Mac Power Users that just aired, uh, episode three nineteen. I'll link it in the show notes where they talked to an academic, and. You know, one person that they talk to uses Evernote, one uses OneNote, one person <laughs> writes in uh, LaTeX, one person writes in Word. And there are all these really interesting ways to get stuff done uh, that they were talking about that I think yeah. we could spend easily a whole show on. But it's interesting to hear somebody that uses Evernote and without hesitation says, I love this product. Yeah, yeah, that is that is very interesting. Do you have the uh, Jot script, Natalie? I I don't. And now that you are so surprised about my love for it, I'm very nervous that I'm not using it properly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think you are using it properly and I wasn't. That's the that's the thing. I never yes. got my head around the best way to organize, yeah. like Shannon yeah. was saying. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. where I'm sort of stuck in this weird in-between place with wanting to make it all of my life and still carrying around 15 different notebooks yeah yeah <laughs> organization feels so good but it's so hard it to maintain so sometimes it's <laughs> so true yes but, well do you have anything else that you would like to add about your research or just anything before we we move on to everybody's favorite segment um yeah i will i will just say that another um experiment that if you have any interest in active source seismic uh acquisition but not on land we can actually do this uh or not on sorry not offshore but on land um is you should check out a a wonderfully named experiment called sugar Uh, this is an acronym (laughs) it's called obviously (laughs) obviously uh it stands for i'm bringing it up now because i almost forget the swanee suture and georgia rift basin experiment um, and we can link it in the show notes. And this was this epic experiment that we did in Georgia, where instead of using an air gun, we set off explosions and recorded the seismic waves generated by explosions on a series of uh, land experiments. And there's a really cool blog that you can read about it. And uh, yeah, they should everyone should check it out. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I will say, you know, I said earlier that we we're going to link your website in. But you've got a lot of really cool stuff on the blog on your website that people should go check out as well. Uh, in fact, I was just looking at the one about uh, making your figures videos. Oh, thanks. That is, is a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I kind of use my website a little bit like Evernote, too. I feel like it's like, oh, I like finally figure out how to do something. It's like, oh, I'll write a blog about that. So if there's, I like to think <laughs> that if there's another clone of me somewhere that's like, why is making videos in MATLAB so hard that they'll stumble upon this little blog post and be like, oh, it's not so hard. Just don't use MATLAB. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I assume you've had that experience of where you wonder how to solve something and you Google it, and then the first result is your blog. <laughs> well, that doesn't help. <laughs> I actually haven't had that experience, but, but well, maybe I'll tailor my Google searches now to have that happen. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's pretty good. It, it's... It's disconcerting oh. when you're like, how to animate, you know, da-da-da, <laughs> and for me, you know, Python on the end of everything. Yeah. And then the result's like, oh, you know, yeah, okay, I know that. And it's not <laughs> yeah. working. So. That didn't work the first time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I guess with that, then, we should move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show, 
Fun Paper Friday. Yeah. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Still no cowbell. <laughs> no cowbell. Uh, I've, I've resigned myself to Monty Python-like exclamations of excitement. <laughs> and so, Natalie, you picked this paper, and that means that you have to read the title. <laughs> okay. This because is an, I'm not going to on radio. <laughs> this is an epically amazing title. So, the paper is by Chang and Gross, and it's titled... How many pairs would a pear packer pack if a pear packer could pack pears at quasi-exogeneously varying peace rates? <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, this this should get an award, definitely, based on the title. Yeah. Uh, it turns out, actually, well, when I first read the abstract, I thought, well, this seems kind of... I don't know, pointless. And then <laughs> as you read it. And that's what I thought too. <laughs> yeah. And then oh, as I'm you sorry. read it, it actually got to be a really interesting paper, which is why we do these things on Fun Paper Friday, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I won't lie. The title is what hooked me. And, uh, and then I was happy mm-hmm. to find that the paper followed suit. Yeah, it's how you get your H index up is come up with a title like this, right? Yeah. Uh, so. Oh man. I'm trying to figure out how to meld Star Wars and PMAG. It's gonna happen. Well, uh, one of one of our professors here, let's see, what was his um ice cream, you scream, we all scream for ice streams. Oh uh, yeah. So it's all about the title. But this one in particular uh, was talking about workers at a pear packing plant and how whether they worked overtime and whether they were packing different sizes of pears changed how hard they worked uh, and how the, the pay effective pay rate fluctuated with that. And it's actually a really complicated problem and they develop a relatively complex model as well to go with it. I, we should mention that this is in the journal of economic behavior and organization. Mm. So true, you know, that's, (laughs) this is where it belongs. Okay. Yeah, the, the model they came up with, it was a lot more complex than I think I had initially estimated or expected. The models uh, contained some a lot of parameters, and some of them were fatigue and also whether or not someone expected overtime. And it seems like this whole concept of did you expect overtime or was overtime a surprise seemed like a really important part of whether of how hard you worked. Yeah, and that was one of the big conclusions was they were saying managers, you should manage your workers' expectations very carefully. Uh, and also, I did not know that pear packing was so complicated. Yeah. But there, there's a section of the paper on it. And so there are multiple different sizes of pears uh, from 60 to 150. And the number indicates how many pears fit into a standard four-fifth bushel box which four-fifth bushel box has to be one of the most absurd units. Uh, (laughs) Clearly part of the English system. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But the idea was, so you're paid per piece. So when you're putting uh, lots of small pairs into a box or several, but not as many, large pairs into a box, that changes how much you get paid per box. And does that vary how... Uh, quickly and efficiently the workers work and so they rotate every 15 minutes in the factory to packing different size boxes and it said that the uh, the workers with less experience especially uh, when the the time getting near switching would come all of a sudden would speed up a lot they would get much more efficient whereas workers that were seasoned had a very consistent performance over both the entire time and the different sizes of pairs as well yeah, that was so interesting, and I, I felt like I could totally understand uh, why maybe you would <clears throat> speed up at the end of that 15-minute period, because they talk about how even if you're not done with your box, you can still stay on past the end of this 15-minute period and pack with another person, but just the anxiety that must be induced in like hearing a buzzer and, right. and having a box that's not yet yeah. full, I can see how a, someone who is less experienced might really push at the end to get everything done in that 15-minute time window. Yeah, that would be, I mean, and you're looking at that buzzer 32 times during your shift. Yeah. Yeah, that's got to be awful. If that's just an eight-hour day. And like you said, this is a seasonal thing, and pears don't uh, store well. Right. So they have 
uh, times where they're working 10-hour shifts. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting how much their shift varied because it has this 24-hour limit after which pairs have to be boxed within 24 hours, I think they said, between when they arrive and, and when they go out. And so when you arrive at work, you don't know how long your shift is going to be. And because of that unknown, that's where they get into, oh, you might not know how much overtime you're getting at the beginning of the week um, because it's a law that if you go over 40 hours per week, you're paid overtime. But by Thursday, Friday, you probably know that you're over that 40-hour limit and that you're going to be getting a lot of overtime. And then that might change how much effort you actually put into work. Yeah, and I thought it was strange that when you had this accumulated kind of surprise overtime, uh, you actually worked less efficiently. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, too. No, I mean, I I would have just thought that as you saw that you were getting behind and were going to be late again tonight or whatever, you would really pick it up. But apparently that's not the case. It seems like you might get a little bit demotivated after working all of these really long shifts doing this. They had an interesting, um, an interesting paragraph in here talking about evaluating the average worker versus the highly skilled worker's behavior, and it's right before they talk about this overtime. And I loved it because they say we cannot distinguish the hypothesis that highly skilled workers um, are better able to generate and incorporate rational targets. They cannot <laughs> distinguish that hypothesis from the alternative hypothesis that more skilled workers are simply more rational than their less skilled peers. <laughs> 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 I really just want to print that off. It just seems like this translates to like all levels of life. You know what I mean? Man, that would explain some of my freakouts when my code doesn't work and why I feel like the professors are sometimes exactly. much more level-headed than just- I am. <laughs> You're just less rational because you can't help it. <laughs> well, and so in, in here, there's figure two that actually, this was kind of a, an eye-opening one. It shows you seconds per pair as a function of how long you've been on the shift. So you start out pretty low. When you go on your fresh, it increases and then decreases again towards the end of the day. And then when you go into overtime, it jumps up by, you know, like a factor of four. You get much slower. Uh, but so... I mean, you're talking fractions of a second here. Yeah. It's an incredibly small amount of time to pack each pair. Yeah. I think they said what the average uh, pair was between, packing a pair was between 2 and 2.4 seconds, depending on size. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and then you're increasing that by over half a second when you go into overtime. (laughs) Really slowing it down. Yeah. And if if you're packing a box of a couple hundred pairs... That adds up pretty quickly. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And the actual process where they said they have to hand wrap these pairs uh, in material to keep them from being damaged. And the fact that, yeah, that, I mean, I'm just thinking of the absolute process of wrapping that pair and then placing it in a predetermined pattern. That was also very interesting to me. What is this predetermined pattern that they have for packing the pairs? Uh, But that they can do that so quickly. It was really cool. Yeah. And I also wonder, so this is a pretty recent paper, it's 2014, uh, but how much of that could, like, could this packing, uh, could you have people wrapping the pairs and putting them on a belt and then the packing be automated? Oh, interesting. How has this process changed or is there enough variation between each pair that we're never going to automate this? As long as we're using four-fifth bushel size boxes, probably it's, not. It's true. <laughs> Never out of it. Yeah. <laughs> That's really the probably hindrance is the yeah. size of the box. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, so anyway, this was a really interesting study in uh, psychology, economics, some math modeling. Uh, yeah, a little bit of social a- economics, too. They were talking yeah. about a little bit about peer pressure. And I think they came to the conclusion that uh, the factory is too loud to allow too much peer pressure to happen. So that's interesting, too. But the but the average workers, not the highly skilled ones, are completely irrational. I took that from this as well. <laughs> well and, and also, too, it's being an, a, a behavior behavioral economist, mm. behavioral economist, yeah, uh, whatever, whatever, what, behavioral <laughs> economist. Yeah, well, whatever they are, uh, that they actually went to this factory and somebody stood there and counted and timed 
all of these workers for all of these shifts to get this data to have some kind of significance. Uh, that's, that's an interesting, different kind of field work. Yeah, think, yeah that is true. Another one of my favorite highlighting sentences was saying how that the unskilled workers were consistently surprised at the end of every 15 minutes. And I just, <laughs> <laughs> like, that brings to mind, like, what did that person observe standing there that made them think they were consistently surprised? Yeah. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. yeah, the person that didn't watch the clock and put two pairs in their next box of 160 and the buzzer goes off. That's right. <laughs> oh, yeah. consistent surprise. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, I think this was a really great pick, Natalie. So <laughs> thanks for finding this one. Yeah, I certainly yeah. don't think we would have stumbled on this one Uh, unless you were like me googling uh what are these called rhymes or tongue twisters there you go if you were googling tongue twisters you might have found it (laughs) wow so before we sign off i would like to uh, have you tell people where you would like to be found on the internet (laughs) uh social media and that kind of thing i know that you're relatively active on twitter yeah, I, w- I would love for you to find my website, which is natalieacardo.com. And on Twitter, I'm at gone to space. Uh, and yeah, I like to tweet about my love for Dropbox and Evernote and also just other cool stuff I find. All right, so we'll have all of that linked in the show notes. If you have a fun paper that you would like to send us or just a rhyme that you think would make a good paper title, that could be a lot of fun. (laughs) Or any feedback on the show. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Well, they can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And as always, we spend our days on Twitter, not working and messing around, at geo (laughs) underscore Lehman and at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.